I introduced myself, but we didn't introduce Dr. Melissa Davis, who uh, works in the University College as a professor of music and worship, and William Jones, one of the UC students here. I grabbed some headlines for us to look at, just uh, a couple. Can we see the next slide? Oh, there's one missing. All right. So, and they bring to our mind things that are happening all around us, that our world is full of suffering. And every single person, let alone every religious system, needs to deal with evil and suffering. In Christianity, we call it theodicy, the problem of evil. And where does evil come from? And, and, and how does it work itself out? And what, what is its purpose? And I think that as Christians, it's especially difficult to deal with these questions. Because if you are a Christian, you profess that God is in control, right? God is sovereign that he's got the whole world in his hands and that he is a loving God, that his, his heart direction is towards us, God so loved the world, and that he values life in general and perhaps human life in particular. So it's a God who promises all kinds of good things. But then he doesn't seem to deliver sometimes. And that can be worse than having no expectations at all, right? It's being pr like promised an excellent gift for your birthday and then being given a raisin or something. You're like, what? But you promised, you said, I was relying, that's a, you know, whatever. The difference between what is and what we think should be. Do you have places like that in your own life right now? or maybe from your past. I, I want to believe in you, God, but where were you when my parents split up? I, I do believe, God, but where were you when I was neglected or sexually abused or tormented or when my best friend got cancer? Where were you, God? Asleep on the job? Where are you? When day after day I experience stressful situations. So many things happen to us, even to us, that we would not choose ourselves at all. Our desire is to feel in, in control of our lives, to have only good things happen to us. It's like there are two boxes. We want our Christian life to be like a mall experience where we get to pick and choose what we want because we have the currency to buy it according to our own desires. We'll, we'll take box one, peace, blessings, joy, strength, excellent, but... Box two, that one that holds suffering and sickness and tears and weakness and grief and agonizing questions. I mean, we understand, God, that you have to, you know, some of that has to go out to people in this broken world, but, but not to me, okay? Or at least not, not now. Like, maybe when I'm ready, I'll let you know, okay? Goodbye. But what we don't realize or maybe what we don't want to know is that sometimes box two is the way to box one. 
or it leads to a deeper and fuller understanding and grounding of box one. We're going to read 2 Corinthians 12, verse 1 to 10, and I do have the scripture on the screen. Paul um, is writing here in defense of his own leadership, his right to be an apostle. And so he says, I must go on boasting. Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given to me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest in me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. Paul, writing this, he understood about box one and box two Christians. He's writing to this church in Corinth, right? This church that he knows very well. And lately he hasn't been very happy with what's happening there. They've started to value the wrong sorts of things in their Christian walk. For one thing, they've gone completely gaga about spiritual experiences and only certain kinds of experiences. Ecstatic, heavenly experiences, a a vision maybe, or God speaking clearly, a a, a prophecy, maybe even a glimpse of, of angels. Wow, wouldn't that be something? And of course... It would, and it is. Paul's quarrel isn't with the fact that these things were happening. He himself was instructing them in the gifts of the Spirit. But it was how the Corinthians treated such incidents. They made them badges of honor. As if God was handing out presents to people he found special who really got his favor. And whoo, 
I got one, lucky me. In fact, I got three. I got three I can tell you about, how about you? See, there was this pride that, that came into the whole picture when these experiences were, born, were, were worn as badges of honor. They were, they were big on box one experiences, as if they were signs of God's special favor. And secondly, some new leaders had come into town who were challenging Paul's uh, authenticity. How could he claim to be an apostle? What authority did he have to teach others? And so Paul feels like he doesn't have a choice but to defend himself. That's why he says, I must go on boasting, although you can hear his reluctance. In fact, he's so reluctant that he tells this story in the third person. I know of a man who, he says, but later on it becomes obvious that that man is actually himself who had these ecstatic experiences. But he is not going to wear those as badges of honor. That's not what his life is about. So, says Paul, enough boasting already. Now let me tell you what happened after that. You think spiritual experiences are so great? Let me tell you what happened after that. To keep me from becoming conceited, because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me, notice that it's, it's passive voice, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Something unexpected happened after that, he says, and I know why. It was to keep me from becoming proud and conceited, to keep me humble and dependent. Paul was given a thorn in the flesh. What was his thorn in the flesh? Well, we'd have 300 different theories maybe right here, and there are commentaries written not solely dedicated to his thorn in the flesh, but chapters of commentaries, let's say. What was Paul's thorn in the flesh? Oh, if only we knew. Well, you know, I think it's wisdom, the wisdom of Scripture that we don't know because it could be anything. It could be anything that he experienced. The word scallops, the Greek word thorn, just means something pointed. So it was used of like a spear was pointed or a surgical instrument or the point of a fish hook. And so Paul is using it as an analogy, right? And it could be an emotional ailment of some sort. I mean, maybe he was prone to anxiety or depression. Any of us out there. Insomnia, maybe. Or maybe it was a physical illness. He refers in Galatians to saying, you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached among you. And others think there are clues in texts that say he had an eye condition. Or others, when he says, I didn't come with powerful words, think he had a speech impediment. Or maybe it was headaches or, or migraines. Probably some of that represented among us. We know that there were a lot of circumstantial conditions in Paul's life. Persecution, troublesome people who, who stirred up others against him. His, his passion to reach his own people that wasn't met in his life in the way that he wanted to. Or, or maybe it was temptations. Whatever it was, it was extremely bothersome. And it was recurring and it was a hindrance to his ministry. 
Perhaps you have something like that. And because God has not chosen to reveal what Paul's thorn was, anything can fit. Paul further calls it a messenger from Satan. There's no doubt in his mind that this thing is evil. It's not of godly origin. It torments him. And here's an important distinction. God is not the author of this evil. Because God is never the author of evil. This evil, this bad thing, is definitely attributed to Satan. It comes from the kingdom of the enemy, not God's kingdom. God does not torment. God did not send it, but he allowed it. Let me repeat that. God did not send it, but he allowed it. And that's a a partial, only a a small partial explanation of why some kinds of sufferings happens even among Christians. It explains the kind of suffering that happens here. One kind of plan that God is working out. We see something like this in the opening chapters of Job, where we get, you know, it's like the curtains are pulled back and we get a glimpse into the heavenly throne room. And angels come and before God, and also Satan appears. And God, in conversation with Satan, points out his excellent servant Job, and Satan scoffs at him. Well, a man will, you know, have a good life if he's having a good life, but stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. And so God gives permission. He says, okay, Okay, you can do that, something to my servant Job. We'll we'll test this and see. But notice that God sets parameters on it. You must spare his life. So God allows it, but there are also parameters which Satan cannot cross around it. God does not send it, but he allows the suffering. And yet God's own purposes are somehow fulfilled through this. Now, I know that's not always a comfort. There are times when I've heard this teaching, and often when you're down, someone will come to you with this teaching, and it just makes you angry. Usually because the circumstances make me very angry. It's wrong for babies to die. It's wrong for a teenager to commit suicide. It's not right for a child to get cancer. And I don't want to just say, oh, well, it must be God's will. We're not fatalistic. How can bad things ever be God's will when God's will from the beginning did not include sin and evil and sickness? But you see, that's where the next part of the story comes in. Because Paul doesn't just fatalistically accept it either. When this first happened to him, he fought it. He wasn't just going to give in to this thing, and he fought it in the best way possible. He took this matter, and he stormed into the throne room of God. That's what we must do, too, to take these things and wrestle with them and bring them before the face of God. Sometimes we allow them to become a barrier between us and God, But Paul instead brought it there. 
when sickness or some other affliction comes, we can go to God and we can rightly ask why. We can lament, we can protest because God's word, the Psalms especially, are full of lament and protest. Why God? Why do the evil prosper? Why is this happening to me? Why have you turned your face away from me? What is the meaning of this God? Now Paul is a man of faith. He knows what God can do, absolutely, unequivocally. He knows what God can do. He has seen many miraculous things with his own eyes. He knows that nothing is impossible with God. And so he asks, God, I don't know what this is about, but I don't like it. It doesn't feel very good, and, and, and it hinders my ministry, and I know it's evil. Please remove it from me. Make it stop. No answer. Silence. So he tries again. I imagine, knowing Paul as a passionate person, I imagine there's a lot of passion in these exchanges and interchanges between himself and God. Maybe he's, he's desperately, like Jesus, praying overnight, seeking God's face. Maybe he's praying in tongues. He says, he tries again, dear father, I could really live a lot better without this. You know the passion of my heart. Please remove this from me so I can do all that you have called me to do. No answer. Silence. 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 And the problem doesn't stop. That's an answer. The thorn stabs again and again. And so now for the third time, like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, Paul approaches the throne room knowing that he is completely loved by God. That he enters by grace through faith. Knowing full well what God is capable of. Perhaps like Jesus, his soul was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Perhaps like Jesus, he prayed, Abba, Daddy, Father, everything is possible for you. I know this. I have seen it. I have experienced it. Take this cup from me. And then the silence is broken. He hears a word from the Lord. It should be like a box one experience. Hallelujah, God has spoken to me. But what does God say? God says, my grace, dear son, is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness, is completed in weakness. My grace, my presence, my strength is all you need in this. In fact, that's what I want you to find in this bad situation. You may not like this thing. It's making you feel weak and helpless. But having you feel weak 
can allow me to do greater things through you if you turn to me and depend on me. If you say, God, I know I can't do this in my own strength. We were praying that before the service started this morning because we're all feeling a little scrambled. God, you, by the power of your spirit, can do something. I remember once after a very tragic thing had happened in my own life, I was at a charismatic Christian conference and and I just felt this distance. I couldn't enter in. And there was this sort of emotional appeal going on about giving yourself fully to God. In fact, there was a huge inflatable uh, globe, the world, and and people were weeping, and, and there was prayer and prophecy, and they were laying their hands on this and saying, yes, God, I will commit, you know, to Africa or whatever, and there's all this stuff going on. And, and I just stood there on the side, and I was weeping, and I said, God, I don't have anything to offer you. All I have is pain. And God said, that's okay, Joan. That's okay. Pain is a very fine gift. Pain is an excellent gift. I can do a lot with pain. Just give me your pain. Some commentators put it this way. The Lord has more need of our weakness than our strength. Our strength is often his rival. Our strength is we can do this. We know how to do this. Let's go. Our weakness is his servant. Drawing on his resources. Showing forth his glory. When we are strong... We don't really need God, we think. When we feel weak, we need him more. We know we need his help. We know we can't do it on our own. Of course, we still have a choice to make. We can choose to engage God with what's happening, or we can resist him in our struggles. The fruit comes when we engage him. Then our bad experiences can make us better, more Christ-like followers. And if we resist them, resist him, we can simply become bitter and not better. And so Paul says this strange phrase, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. Not so that you'll think poorly of me but so that Christ's power may rest on me. My weaknesses, my brokenness, my suffering even can lead to God's power, Christ's power resting on me. Of course, Paul had the benefit of hindsight, didn't he? It's often easier as you get older and look back to make sense of things or perhaps to see how God's promise that he can turn all things to good for those who who love him, that he can redeem things that happen to us. It's usually easier to see it in hindsight. Brothers and sisters, whatever you are experiencing now, know that God has not abandoned you. Your God is with you and he is for you. 
And he is inviting you to come to him with the things that challenge you, that burden you, so that you can do an exchange with him, that he gives you resurrection, glory, and power for the death that you experience. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and praise his holy name. Let me lead you in prayer before we sing a a final song. Dear God, you know your people. You know our hearts. You know our emotions. You know our lives. They're an open book before you. And yet, sadly, we often try to hide things from you try to appear stronger than we are or better than we are, if not to you, then certainly to others. Forgive us and help us to learn this lesson that our weakness is actually a place where you can be strong, where you can show your glory, and where we can depend on your power and not boast in our own strength. Lead us to Jesus more and more each day. Our example, our witness, that baby who was helpless and dependent, who grew into a man who obeyed you fully and now lives and reigns with you in glory and ever intercedes for us. It's in his name that we pray, and all God's people say, amen.